This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2004 conversation with the late U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Perry. It's part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. With me in the studio today is the Honorable Matthew J. Perry, Jr., Federal District Judge in the state of South Carolina. And we're going to talk a little bit about growing up in South Carolina and take a look at his life and career and how South Carolina has changed from pre-World War II to the present. First of all, Your Honor, welcome to the Journal. Thank you. We've had a number of your contemporaries on in the last few weeks, and we've talked about growing up in South Carolina. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you growing up in Columbia before World War II? Well, there is, of course, a great deal of difference. As uh, I'm sure all of your listeners undoubtedly know, I was born in 1921, and I um, grew up in Columbia with the exception that for a short time, my father, who was a World War I veteran, was hospitalized in Tuskegee, Alabama. So my mother took me, my brother and sister, down to uh, Tuskegee, Alabama, where we lived for a period. I'm, uh, memory does not serve me mm-hmm. concerning exact time. It, it might have been as much as two years. Yeah. And, and uh, me, if for our listeners, the reason he was there is because of segregated hospitals. That is correct. Even for that our is veterans. correct. Even for our veterans. I remember that when I was in Tuskegee as a, a child, really, I was there when the 29 crash occurred. Mm-hmm. Also, somewhere about that time, I remember the news came out that several young men had been arrested on... Um, a freight train in the case that later became popularly known as the Scottsboro yes. Boys case. Yes, a, a, a case which uh, my colleague Dan Carter has written so movingly about the Scottsboro trial. Absolutely. Uh, we returned to Columbia uh, where I uh, re-entered the elementary school during my last year in elementary school before I went down to Booker, Washington. Was that in Sa- at Saxon School? No, that was the old Waverly Elementary School. Okay. At first, of course, uh, as a child, uh, you know, I was l- l- confined mm-hmm. to the, the black section of Columbia. I had no interaction. I uh, did not immediately uh, know how um, restrictive it was in racial terms. Now, when you're talking about that neighborhood in which you grew up, uh, that's the area pretty much around Allen and Benedict. That's correct. And that was really a sub-community, a community within a community. It you was. Your Absolutely. own shops, your own stores, own hospital, own that's schools. Correct. Yes, there was a, a hospital right around the corner. Yeah. As a boy, of course, um, I got jobs after school. I worked in various ways. I delivered newspapers. I cleaned yards. <laughs> and... Um, Uh, In our own home, I had chores to perform. At least in our neighborhood, we didn't have central heat. Uh, You had to uh, bring in wood and coal, and um, I was given various chores of that sort as a boy. Uh, I was uh, subjected to a rather rigid disciplinary code uh, in the home of my maternal grandfather, and... um, that included going to church, to Sunday school, etc. And what did your maternal grandfather do? He worked for the Southern Railway Company. He, uh, as I recall, he was a brakeman. Mm-hmm. He had also worked as a fireman. Mm-hmm. On, on the railroad? On the railroad, yes. So, so that meant actually during the Depression, he had a pretty good job. Yes, yes. I might add, he only had around three, possibly four years of formal schooling. So um, he was just barely literate. But it, it seems like I remember from an earlier conversation is that in your household growing up, that education was considered very, very important. It was. It was considered very, very important. Um, my mother insisted that I, my brother and sister, go to school, even at a point in time at which some of my contemporaries were dropping out of school to get employment. My mother insisted that I remain in school, even though she was a young widow. By the way, my father died when I was 12 years old. I was then the oldest of three children. 
and it must have been quite difficult for her. Uh, and I wanted to stop and go to work, but she insisted that I go to school. And you graduated from Booker Washington High School. I did in 1939. And did you go in the service then, or did you go to, to South Carolina State? I enrolled at South Carolina State. I I uh, stayed there for over two years uh, before I was drafted into the military service during World War II. You were in, in the European theater. Yes, I was. And uh, you ended up at Bastogne. I did. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, we were, see, we were, we were quartermaster troops. Mm-hmm. We, um, now, see, I think that's interesting because in World War I, whether your dad was in the 371st or not, yes. uh, African-Americans were put into combat units. That's in, correct. In World War II, that you were put in support units. African-Americans were mostly put in support units. At least mine was. Transportation, yes. quartermaster, exactly. supply. That's uh, right. When um, we were assigned to the 3rd Army under General Patton, when the breakthrough at uh, Bastogne occurred, why um, General Patton ordered all, all troops from the, within the immediate environment to suit up and get into Bastogne. Mm-hmm. And you got there during the thick of the fight or right after? Or? Right after the right. thick of the fight, mm-hmm. but it was uh, still, still quite, a, quite a terrible area. All right. After the war, you're, you're demobilized. Um, you come back to to South Carolina, and you, you re-enroll in SC State and graduate. That's correct. I was discharged in, in January 1946, and I, was, um, I had to go back to school to complete my undergraduate schooling, but I was waiting until the fall semester uh, at the beginning of the 46-47 school year. At some point during the spring, two cases came for trial here in the federal court in Columbia, and I um, and one or two of my friends went up to the courthouse to witness the trial. I might add that by that time, I had decided on my career choice. I had decided that I was going to study law. And so the fact that these two very important trials were going to occur uh, excited my interest, and I went to hear them. And what were these two cases? One of them was the case of Elmore versus Rice. Uh, That case is one in which uh, the plaintiff, uh, George Elmore, uh, representing himself, it was a class action in which he and others similarly situated were seeking the right to vote in the the primary election, which was then run by the Democratic Party as an all-white party. It was operated as a private club, by the way. Yes. It had been not a private club until the case in Texas, and then South Carolina, in one week, the General Assembly repealed 140-some-odd laws to make sure, this was under Governor Olin D. Johnston, to make sure that the Democratic primary could remain basically all white. If you were an African-American who could prove that your grandfather had voted, or father had voted for... Wade Hampton, and it was attested to by X number of white voters, then you might be allowed to vote. Yes. Now, of course, uh, before I was drafted into the military service, I uh, was enlisted and became a young Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, bear in mind now, that was the only realistic opportunity I had to participate in the political process at the time. Well, now, see, today... That shocks people that almost all Republicans in South Carolina prior to World War II or even up into the late 1940s, with a few exceptions of some very, very white conservative businessmen, the party was overwhelmingly African-American. Exactly. Uh, Because this goes back to the Civil War, Reconstruction, the party of Lincoln and the freeing of the slaves. Yes. This trial brings a a favorite character of yours into play, Judge Waitis Waring. Yes. By the way, Judge Waring presided over both of those trials back to back. And when he ruled against the state, uh, he said that the sky would not fall as South Carolina rejoined the Union. Exactly. Was that decision a shock to you, that a white South Carolina judge would say something like that? I guess I was not then aware of the reluctance of many um, judges in the South to rule as courageously as Judge Waring did. Mm-hmm. All right, so what was the second trial? The second trial was one in which a young black American had sued to enter the 
University of South Carolina's law school. Okay. Uh, he had applied to the law school, was refused because of his race, and so he sued um, in an effort at getting the university enjoined from refusing to admit uh, uh, African-Americans. I mean, didn't South Carolina supposedly give lip service to separate but equal? Oh, as a, matter, as a matter of fact, that was the law of South Carolina. Mm. But, but there was no opportunity for African-Americans to go to law school, so there was no even paper equality. Well, at the time, of course, South mm. Carolina belonged to the Southern Regional Council that um, had a program, I think it was the Southern Regional Council, and, of course, uh, if you were a young African-American wanting to pursue a course of study at the University of South Carolina or at some other school that was not offered at South Carolina State College, then South Carolina would uh, give you financial assistance to leave the state and pursue that course of study in a school outside of South Carolina. Now, your wife did that, did she not? She did. My wife pursued a master's degree at Columbia University under that program. Paid for by the state of South Carolina. That's correct. Because they did not want her to come to a master's degree program in education at the University of South that's, Carolina. That's correct, yes. Okay. All right. Now, that, that trial had a particular personal bearing on you. It did. It did. The lawyers in that case were from the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Mm-hmm. They were headed by Thurgood Marshall, later to become a Supreme Court justice, and, of course, uh, uh, other lawyers included Robert Carter. He, too, became a United States district judge. And um, as an aside, uh, uh, I went to New York uh, two weeks ago and spoke at the uh, New York Hilton uh, on a program honoring Judge Robert Carter. Because he was one of the lawyers who, who argued later in the Supreme Court in the Brown versus Board of Education uh, cases. Did you have any idea sitting in that, that and you, you, you were in a segregated section in the courtroom, were you not? No. As a matter of fact, the federal court, uh, you could sit wherever you chose. Okay. But the practice then generally was that uh, there was segregated seating. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2004 conversation with the late U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Perry. It's part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. But did you have any idea then, watching Thurgood Marshall argue that case, that at one time in the not-too-distant future that you and he would be colleagues? Did did you ever dream that that would occur? I did not. I did not. But let me say I was was, uh, impressed. Uh, I was mesmerized by the the brilliance of the man by his articulate uh, advocacy and um, by his great presence. And what was the fallout from that second case about the the young man trying to go to law school? Uh, Judge Waring decided that case in accordance with the law as it then existed uh, and had been declared by ordering that the University of South Carolina that in the larger sense, the state of South Carolina, either uh, admit John Wrighton and others similarly situated to its state-supported university's law school or provide for him and others similarly situated a separate but equal education at some other uh, institution within the state rather than, of course, Mm -hmm. requiring uh, such persons to leave the state. And, and so that is how a law school was established at South Carolina State. Precisely. It's interesting, um, Dean Prince, who was the dean of the law school here, at one point later on was called to testify before a Senate committee. And uh, Attorney Gus Graydon here told me this story because he was there, that, that Dean Prince was quizzed as to why it was more, so much more expensive for a pupil to train uh, students at SC State as it was at USC. And his comment was, gentlemen, the price of prejudice is very high. In fact, I was present in the courtroom when that cross-examination, uh, when, when, he, when he testified and when he was cross-examined by Thurgood Marshall in one of the classic uh, displays of cross-examination that I'd seen. Well, Dean Prince was, was quite a character in his own, but telling the senior senators of this state that basically because they wanted separate but equal, it was going to cost them money. Exactly. 
Exactly. Okay. And as a result of that new law school at SC State, you enroll there a year or two later. I had uh, returned to South Carolina State to complete my undergraduate studies. And by now, I had determined that I wanted to go to law school. And I had identified Howard University in Washington and alternatively another school in Massachusetts, not Harvard. Mm -hmm. I believe it was Boston. Mm -hmm. Why Boston? I cannot today tell you. I think I had heard about it. Mm -hmm. But Howard was my principal ambition. Why? Because Thurgood Marshall himself had graduated from Howard University, as did Harold Bulware. Mm -hmm. By the way, Harold Bulware was one of the lawyers. He was the local lawyer in mm -hmm. the two cases that I saw tried. And Howard University had the law school from which most of the black attorneys in the United States had graduated from at that time. And there had always been a strong connection between South Carolina and Howard. Professors like Kelly Miller and William Brawley had been on the faculties there. Exactly. So yes. there, there had always been a strong connection between South Carolina and the African-American community in Washington, D.C. Certainly. Okay. As I continued pursuing my, the completion of my undergraduate studies, now South Carolina had begun the startup of the new law school, at South Carolina State. And the um, original group of new professors now needed students. Mm -hmm. And they began inquiring about, and I'm sure someone must have suggested that I had indicated an interest in the study of law. And eventually, one of them came to me and uh, mentioned the possibility of my enrolling. And I responded that I didn't know that that would be a wise course for me because this is a startup school, and I had already decided I was going to Howard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he certainly agreed. Um, he said, well, I don't blame you, but let me suggest that while you pursue your undergraduate studies, by the way, I was carrying a reduced load because I didn't have but so many courses to make up. Mm -hmm. He said, if you've got time, just come and sit in on some of the classes and observe what is going on, and at least you'll have a good idea what you're going to be exposed to when you get to Howard mm -hmm. or wherever you might choose to go. And so that's how I entered that school. I began, and of course, um, I, I stayed there. Mm -hmm. And I graduated from that school in 1951. In those days, taking the bar exam? Prior to the year of my graduation in 1951, if you had graduated from a law school in South Carolina, you didn't have to take the bar examination. Uh, you were admitted under what was then known and what is still known as the diploma privilege. Mm -hmm. Now, South Carolina decided, the bar officials decided that uh, they ought to begin administering the examination to all new uh, entrants into the South Carolina system, and they just chose to do it the year I graduated. <laughs> I tell young lawyers who uh, have come before the bar since then that they have me to thank <laughs> for their having to take the bar examination. Now, of course, uh, let me hasten to say that the officials proclaimed that they had been intending to do this for many, many years. Well, was the bar exam colorblind, or did you have to... When you take the bar, there's no way to, to know who, who does the paper. I don't know whether that is true or not. I have the sense that everyone present knew I was there. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in terms of your, your paper that, that... Yeah. You, you mean, did my examination papers have my name on it? Yeah. And that kind of thing. Honestly, I cannot today remember... Mm -hmm. I have no doubt that there was uh, an effort at uh, particular scrutiny, shall we say, <laughs> to be kind about it. <laughs> uh, to be kind about it. I suppose so. Okay. Yes. But you passed the bar. Yes. And by the way, there were six uh, uh, men of color, all men. There were no females among that group. There were six of us who took it. I was the only one who passed. Let's see. Three of us were South Carolina State graduates. Of the three, I was the only one who passed. The other three were from other institutions. Um, I beg your pardon, one other black person passed. That was Donald Sampson, who had graduated from Temple University's law okay. school. And of course, he and I became close friends during the 
process of review, and uh, I uh, began my practice in Spartanburg. He began his in Greenville, and we interacted over the years and matured as well, now, lawyers. Why, you're a Columbia native. Why Spartanburg? Good question. I have uh, relatives in Spartanburg. More of them then were alive, and of course they were were operators of a of a thriving funeral home business. So uh, this relative suggested, why don't you come to Spartanburg and uh, set up? Uh, I'll introduce you to a lot of my friends and get you started. Well, Columbia, there were already uh, just a few uh, black Americans. There were there was Harold Bulware, mm-hmm. uh, my own, um, later my law partner, Lincoln Jenkins, mm-hmm. and uh, two other lawyers who uh, were already practicing here, one of whom was Albert Kennedy. Albert Kennedy was in the first class that graduated from South Carolina okay. State. Uh, there were two of them, and they didn't have to take the bar examination. Well, where did Judge Jenkins get his law degree? At Howard. At Howard? Yes. Okay. So you're in Spartanburg, and how long before you become involved with, uh, as an attorney for the NAACP? Uh, within about uh, less than five years. In fact, uh, my first such case came after I had been practicing less than three years uh, when uh, Mr. Hinton, then the, um, the state president of the NAACP, called upon two of us to go down to Dorchester County to undertake the representation of a young man And so uh, we were called upon to undertake this matter. We challenged the systematic exclusion of blacks from service on the grand and petty juries in that county, Um, and we prevailed in that effort. Uh, By the way, that was a widespread practice in many counties in South Carolina at the time. And and so in essence, Mr. Hinton was sort of putting you to a test. I would think so. Yes. Now, was this the incident where you went with the judge? The judge was surprised that you were an African American, or was that in another? Case? No, that was that was another case. Some, not not too long thereafter. <laughs> I think our listeners would enjoy hearing that. <laughs> I know you've told me that anecdote before, but I, yes. I, I think it's well worth sharing with our all listeners. All right, very good. Well, all right. I'm still in Spartanburg. By the way, I stayed in Spartanburg for ten years, from 1951 until 1961, and it was about halfway through that period period that a lady in Spartanburg came and employed me to handle a matter for her against her husband, who uh, was a resident of another county. It was a low country county. It was, that, that's correct. It was a low... Because <laughs> 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 I think that makes the story even better. <laughs> yes, yes. And so the law of South Carolina is if, if one South Carolina citizen is suing another South Carolina citizen, you've got to sue that person in the county where that person resides. So I instituted the suit. By the way, it was a domestic suit, a divorce suit. Under the law, you had to wait a certain number of days before the case was ready for hearing. So when the time came, I saw the resident circuit judge from from that area, who happened to have been up in Spartanburg, as judges did at that time, rotating around the state. And I mentioned to him that I had this matter that I wanted to bring to trial and I asked if he would give me a hearing. Mm-hmm. He said to me, no, I won't hear you myself, but I'll refer it to the master in equity mm-hmm. who happened also to have been the probate judge. Mm-hmm. He was the probate judge, ex officio, master in equity. Mm-hmm. Master in equity, of course, is a, a lower court judge mm-hmm. designated to try matters arising in equity mm-hmm. that are referred to that judge mm-hmm. by the, the circuit judge. Mm-hmm. And so he did sign such an order, and then I wrote the master in equity and mentioned to him that the matter had been assigned to him and asked if I could have a hearing. And hearing nothing from him immediately, I made a telephone call. Now, of course, upon reflection, he couldn't look at my my letter. It was on printed stationery, Mm -hmm. and there was nothing about my letter that suggested who I was. I was not then well known. that would not have been possible after a few years because I'd become very well-known around the state. Mm-hmm. But now I was not a well-known person. So he had no way of knowing who I was. And, and finally, I made a long-distance telephone call to him. And I understand from those with whom I have conversed that it is not immediately apparent <laughs> mm-hmm. 
who one is speaking to on the telephone. Mm -hmm. So he gave me the hearing date. He was very cordial, mm -hmm. and uh, he uh, indicated that when I arrived for the hearing that he would take me to lunch. Mm -hmm. He would be glad to see me. Well, on the day in question, I did indeed travel to the Low State County, and I presented myself. I went into the, um, the office, and uh, it was a small office. Uh, there were two people there. I later learned that the, the lady at the other desk was his wife, and I presented myself to her, and I asked to speak with the judge by name. Mm -hmm. She pointed to him. He was sitting over there at another table in a distant part of the same room. He had on his hat, a uh, straw hat, had a cigar in his mouth. Uh, uh, it had no fire on it. it. It wasn't a lit cigar. It was down to about, I would say, less than a one-third length, maybe even a quarter length. As if, you know, some people just chew on their right. cigars. And so... Um, he was had his head down working at some papers, and I went over and stood in front of him. And he let me stand there for a moment. And after a while, he looked up and said, yeah, what what you want? Mm -hmm. And so I said to him, I said, well, Your Honor, I'm, I'm Matthew Perry of Spartanburg. I'm here for the hearing that you've established. Well, the man swallowed the cigar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he actually, he actually swallowed the cigar. Well, he began to, to you know, to gag and to <laughs> everything. And so his wife uh, came over to him and she helped him up and she began patting him on the back and she walked him into an adjoining room. And, of course, I stood there and uh, I overheard her as she continued and she worked on him and apparently he managed to cough the cigar up. <laughs> <laughs> and he came out uh, having cleared his throat, and of course, uh, the hearing went forward. Uh, there was, uh, by the way, no mention of lunch. <laughs> I was going to ask. That. <laughs> <laughs> this is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2004 conversation with the late U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Perry. It's part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. In 1961, you moved to Columbia. You become fairly high profile as the state yes. NAACP attorney, you and your partner, the late Lincoln Jenkins. That's correct. Any number of cases, but the the really big one that I'm thinking of in 1962-63, the Harvey Gantt case. All right. Why don't you tell us how that came about? And for our listeners, South Carolina was the last state to desegregate its institutions of higher education. In the fall of 1962, the state of Mississippi erupted in violence yes. to Oxford because the governor, as you mentioned in an earlier speech, called on the people to resist with violence and whatever. And yes. so literally several people were killed, dozens wounded, injured um, because of the stupidity of the um, and the callousness of, of the government. Exactly, exactly. Um, that didn't happen in South Carolina, but South Carolina had resisted and resisted. But, yes. you, but, but you and your fellow attorneys were, were pushing, and we were. the Harvey Gantt case was going to be the, the real test. Exactly. The Gantt case was pending when the Meredith case finally entered into its final stages. And, and I might add that nationally I was already interacting with the same lawyers who were pressing the Meredith case. Yeah. So and, everything mm -hmm. that was being done in the Meredith case, we were doing in the Gantt case. Right. And for our listeners who are not, for whom this, the 60s are ancient history, the Meredith case is the case at Ole Miss. That's correct. So when finally the final decree was entered directing that Meredith be admitted to the University of Mississippi uh, at Oxford, Mississippi, uh, Ole Miss, uh, which is a very, you know, it has a very famous uh, football uh, legacy. It, its football teams were well known. Mm -hmm. So uh, they had the ability to fill up their stadiums. Mm -hmm. And so they had a big football game at Ole Miss uh, during the week before Meredith was going to enter. There was an overflow crowd out there, and the then governor of Mississippi, Governor Ross Barnett, mm -hmm made an appearance in the football stadium and during the halftime went out onto the field and uh, with microphone at hand and everything uh, made an inflammatory speech chastising the federal courts 
and uh, expressing regrets that the courts had ordered Meredith ad admitted to the University of Mississippi and calling upon the people of Mississippi to rise up with every bit of their strength to resist Meredith's entry uh, and to resist the federal court edicts uh, by doing whatever was, uh, in their view, necessary to prevent it. Well, this, of course, uh, was a call to violence. And it succeeded. And it succeeded. It succeeded. Uh, there was rioting. There was devastation on the campus of the University of Mississippi. I forget how many people were killed. Uh, some two or three or more. And scores were, were And scores injured. were wounded, yes. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, uh, widespread damage to property. Mm -hmm. The United States Marshals, of course, mm -hmm. were there, and they escorted Meredith into class. They remained on campus for a substantial period of time. Folks, that is the background to the case going on here in South Carolina. And while this case is going on, and Judge Perry has, has got it in court, a group of South Carolina business education and political leaders decided that South Carolina was not going to be Mississippi. Robert Edwards, who was president of Clemson, then Governor Fritz Hollings, Mr. Cawthon, who was head of the uh, Manufacturers Association. He was executive director. I don't know whether they actually had any contact with you all or not, but they were working almost in tandem to make sure that there was not going to be any trouble. There was no contact with me, nor with anyone else to my knowledge, until the day or the day before we went to Clemson. I was given my orders <laughs> from the office of the governor and from the office of the state attorney general on how to act. But let's, if, if we will, let's go back to the, right, so what happened do. before that. All right, so let's do. Uh, because I do now know, I, I, I learned about the quiet meetings that mm -hmm. you've just referred to. Mm -hmm. We had the benefit of both the distance that we are from, from Oxford, Mississippi, and the three months that, it, that transpired between uh, September of 1962 and uh, January of 63, mm -hmm. when Gant was entering Clemson. Then Governor Ernest Hollings had come to the end of his term and gave his final, was it his state of the state speech? State of the state speech, yes. At which, among other things, he advised the legislature and through the legislature all of South Carolina that South Carolina at that moment was running out of courts mm -hmm. and that in the not too distant future, a uh, young black student was going to be ordered admitted mm -hmm. to Clemson University. Uh, he called upon South Carolinians to be civil and law-abiding and to refrain from the uh, rioting and devastation and lawlessness that had occurred at Oxford, Mississippi. In fact, the last two sentences of his speech, which with the whole speech was, was magnificent. It was fantastic, yes. Um, he said it should be done with dignity. Yes, It yes. must be done with law and order. Exactly, exactly. And I think you will hear those two phrases, those two sentences, echoing throughout the 1960s, Governor Donald Russell, yes. Governor Bob McNair, later on in the early 70s, John West, and Jim Edwards, the same dignity and law and order. Exactly. Uh, our listeners also need to reflect and be mindful of the fact that within South Carolina and certainly within surrounding areas, there were people fully as capable and indeed motivated to do violence as existed down in Mississippi. But I think the responsible leadership that emanated from the office of the governor mm -hmm. and from other top state officials and from the business community mm -hmm. is responsible for keeping the lid on. You had this young man from Charleston, Harvey Gantt, who wanted to be an architect. That's correct. And again, you get to the question of the state's not supplying him with the opportunity to, to go to architecture school. Correct. Uh, so he, at least he starts school out of state. Yes. At Iowa State. Yes. But then you filed the lawsuit in his behalf. Yes, I had met him uh, when he was still a, a senior at uh, Burke High School in Charleston. Uh, I was at that moment in Charleston, along with several colleagues, handling a case in the courts in Charleston, 
one of the early sit-in cases. Mm -hmm. So this young man introduced himself to me and engaged me in a conversation, told me his name, and stated that he was going to become an architect, that he was going to study architecture, that he wanted to attend one of the better schools of architecture in the country, as he then understood it, which happened to have been Clemson University's mm -hmm. no School of Architecture. No question. And, but he understood there might be a problem. <laughs> That's, pretty good. That's an understatement if there ever were one. <laughs> and uh, that being the case, since it was his uh, intent to go to Clemson, would I be interested in, in, in helping him? Would I help him? And so I uh, invited him to sit down with me. I interviewed him further. I ascertained that he was really serious. I then stated um, that I wanted to meet his parents and I wanted to, you know, have the discussion with, with him and his parents and to um, guide them and advise them on what I perceived to be a course of action that could, of course, be rather eventful. Even dangerous. Even dangerous. And so um, it was in that respect that our relationship began. And, of course, the Gantt case was decided early in 1963. Yes. Harvey Gantt broke the color barrier at Clemson in January, completely uneventful. Uh, that's correct. Now, let me uh, add to that, if, if I might. On the day that we were to go to Clemson, indeed, the one or two days before we went to Clemson, I interacted with the state attorney general, who indicated that he— uh, Was that Dan McLeod? At the yes, uh, that on behalf of the, the governor's office and the president of Clemson, they wanted to coordinate our arrival on the Clemson campus. I was uh, urged to personally drive and transport Ghent to Clemson to not permit others of my colleagues to, uh, to travel onto the Clemson campus on that occasion. They were making every effort, you see, at controlling what they feared would be crowds not unlike those that had gathered at Oxford, Mississippi. And they knew there would be a large cadre of news people there. And so, as I mentioned, Gant's father was going to travel with him, as did Gant's minister. And so they said, well, that's all right, but we want the father and the minister to get out of the car at Greenville, have your mutual friends uh, host them, and only you and Gant proceed from Greenville to Clemson. And um, I agreed to do that. And so on the morning that we left Columbia, I was advised to come over to first the governor's office. And this was then Governor Donald Governor Russell. Governor Donald Russell. And from there over to the state attorney general's office, where the chief of the law enforcement division, Chief J.P. Strom, mm -hmm. was. And I was given a, um, I believe... My recollection, a written itinerary. And, and indeed, it was written out meticulously. I'm told Dr. Edwards, uh, in coordination with other state authorities, drafted it. This is Dr. Bob Edwards, who's president of Clemson. That's correct. Uh, I was told that uh, they would like us to arrive at the administration building at 1.30 that day. We were leaving Columbia at a time that would permit me to arrive. I was advised that, that I would be monitored along the way. We were observed from the air. We were also observed on the ground. Mm -hmm. There were uh, highway patrolmen uh, traveling uh, a substantial distance ahead of me, such that if you had been a casual observer on the highway, uh, it would not have been immediately apparent mm -hmm. that we were traveling together. You see, you have to bear in mind now, the leaders of this effort were state politicians mm -hmm. who did not want the public made aware that they were cooperating and helping to coordinate this matter. Mm -hmm. There was uh, there was another highway patrolman behind me traveling at a distance perhaps more than a quarter of a mile mm -hmm. back. And so I'm driving along, and I was told to drive as fast as I needed to drive in order to plan my arrival at the administration building at 1.30. Mm -hmm. The uh, nation's eyes were turned on it. Uh, you could hear on your radio the news reports nationally that at this very moment 
the young man about to enter Clemson University is en route to that school. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2004 conversation with the late U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Perry. It's part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's journal at 21. I don't want to be a cynical, but I, I really think the media was sort of hoping for an event. Perhaps you're right. At, at, uh, at Oxford. Yes. And they were really shocked when recalcitrant South Carolina, white Carolina. Yes. What did not happen at Clemson? I think you're right. Uh, I mean, the Saturday Evening Post wrote a big big story about it. All the major news magazines yes. were there. Yes. Um, to tell you how successful they were, you see, uh, as I said, it was being broadcast everywhere that I was I was mm. driving in there. And, of course, uh, I had, of course, by this, I was well-known. And so uh, a, um, I passed a person on the road who uh, saw me and recognized me. And so he speeded up, drove up beside me and hailed me to stop <laughs> because he wanted to shake my hand and he wanted to <laughs> congratulate Gant, which I did. I pulled over to the side. And when I did... Um, the highway patrolman behind me closed in on him, and he said, uh, move away, move away. Mr. Perry, Mr. Perry, keep moving, keep moving. <laughs> we, we can laugh about that now, Judge, but yes. those were tense times. They were. They were. The Gantt case was followed very quickly by Henri Monteith and yes. her peers at the University of South Carolina. Yes, we filed uh, the case on behalf of Henri Dobbins Monteith then against the University of South Carolina that fall while the Gantt case was then making its way through the courts. Mm -hmm. And we began processing that case. That case came to trial in the spring of 1963. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it came as a real surprise to many when uh, the late Senator Strom Thurmond nominated you for a federal judgeship, Military Court of Appeals. Uh, yes, that was a surprise to many people. You see, up until that time, there had never been an African-American on any federal court from any of the Deep South states. There were a few in other states but no one in, let us say, south of the Mason-Dixon. Mm -hmm. Why? Because no, no senator from any of those states had ever recommended such a person to a sitting president. That's how federal judges are named. They are named at the suggestion of a sitting senator mm -hmm. to the then chief executive of the country. Mm -hmm. And so, in 1974, uh, when a uh, then judge on the old United States Court of Military Appeals died. That was then a three-judge court. It's now five judges. It became necessary to replace that judge who died leaving six years on his term. Mm -hmm. Now, it so happens that Congress had created that court. That is not, that's not an Article Three court. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an Article One court. When you say Article Three, Article One, please explain for us layperson, sir. Congress. Congress. Yes. Uh, okay, under the Constitution. That's right. Okay. Congress created that court. Okay. And the, the judgeships on that court are term judgeships. Mm -hmm. At that time, they were for 15 years, hmm. as opposed to Article Three judgeships. That's the, what I now have. That's, are, that's during good behavior. Yes. Some people call it life. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the most part, it has been in our nation's history. <laughs> but anyway, Senator Thurman recommended you for this post. Yes. I was in Columbia in federal court trying a, a case. And the clerk handed the presiding judge a note saying that someone from Senator Thurman's office was on the phone uh, wanting to speak with me if the, if the judge would announce a recess to let me answer the phone. Uh, Judge J. Robert Martin on the bench uh, called me to the bench and says, for some reason, uh, Strom Thurmond's office wants to speak with you. <laughs> so I'm going to recess the trial. So I went to the telephone, and sure enough, there was uh, this person from Senator Thurmond's office. It might have been the man we now know as Duke Short, mm -hmm. saying the senator would be in South Carolina at Union later that day for the dedication of a new waterworks uh, project in Union. And the senator wanted to know if I would travel to Union to meet with him. Well, I wondered why, but I said, well, yes, I'd be pleased to meet with the senator. 
Uh, I had been in his presence uh, once or twice, had no reason to know that he knew who I was, but I certainly knew who he was. I guarantee you he knew who you were, Judge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sure enough, I drove to Union, and I was standing around with perhaps several hundred people awaiting the arrival of the senator. There were newspeople there, and uh, two or three automobiles drove up. The senator got out, shook a few hands, and before going into the auditorium where they were going, he was going to make his speech, he said, I've asked a, a young man to meet me here, and I need to talk with him before I go in. He's a Mr. Pear. You know, that was the way he pronounced my name, a Mr. Pear. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, someone pointed me out to him. And he walked over, extended his hand, and he said, Mr. Pear, come on, walk over here in this uh, parking lot with me. I want to speak with you privately. And he um, mentioned to me, he said, Mr. Pear, you've developed a very fine reputation in our state. Uh, Many lawyers speak very highly of you. He said, "Uh, there's a judgeship available in Washington that I would like to recommend you to President Ford for. Now, it doesn't have but six years left on it, but I would like to recommend you to the president. Now, to be sure, I had not at that time heard of the United States Court of Military Appeals. I uh, listened with interest, and I thanked him for thinking of me, and I asked if he would mind my uh, reflecting upon it for a while. Uh, At least overnight, I needed to speak with my wife and with others on whom I... um, relied. And uh, he said, yes. He said, I'll call you in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) And so I traveled to Columbia and needless to say, there wasn't much sleep that night Mm. because I was touching base around. Well, how did Miss Halley react to that? Well, uh, she uh, had mixed reactions. Uh, She knew also that this had possibly a historic uh, aspect to it. And so she finally said, well, do what you feel you want to do and that would be proper, and of course we'll stand by you, whatever. And then, of course, my other colleagues, who all knew that there had never before been uh, any black American given a nomination for a federal judgeship. And so we reflected overnight and decided that this is a significant breakthrough. No Southern senator had uh, ever uh, had the temerity to do it. Mm -hmm. Why? We suspect because they were concerned about the political impact, Mm -hmm. that their supporters would not have uh, been willing to tolerate them. But if anyone could bell that cat, so to speak, Mm. Strom Thurmond's credentials... Mm-hmm. were such <laughs> that surely he could, uh, could absorb whatever adverse reaction the public might have had to mm-hmm. it. And so we agreed that I ought to allow him to put my name in. And then you moved to Washington? Yes. And of course, by the way, Senator Thurman did not get criticized, or at least if he did, it didn't get the widespread reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the praise that he got editorially was outstanding. Mm-hmm such that um, three years later, when President Carter got elected, I also was now identified by my, my other senator, Senator Hollings, who indicated that he would recommend me to President Carter for a United States district judgeship back in South Carolina. And uh, the rest is history. And so then you had over a quarter of a century on the federal district court here in South Carolina. That's correct. Well, Your Honor, we're about to run out of time. And I don't think in this hour or so that we've been able to do real justice to your career. At a dinner the other night in Columbia for the Drummond Center, where you were honored for your statesmanship, Senator John McCain was the guest speaker, and he, he, among others, said many, many kind things about you. They frankly understated what you did, because you did, and I think I can say this from my own work, that you, you helped change the course of our state's history, and you did it in a very South Carolina way. Well, you're very kind. Uh, Yes, I was taught early on about the value of civility and courtesy. And as I approached uh, the practice of law, the handling of cases, 
many of them very difficult, as I have oftentimes stated to audiences, many of these cases were not designed to win friends and influence people. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Judge Perry, thank you so much for being with us today on The Journal and, and sharing your life story with our listeners across South Carolina. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us today on Walter Edgar's Journal. Over the past month, we've had interviews with a number of South Carolinians whose careers spanned the 20th century into the 21st. And today, our conversation with Matthew J. Perry was a little bit different because he grew up as a young African-American in a segregated South Carolina. His life is one which Senator John McCain of Arizona characterized as one of an American hero, not on the battlefield, but a hero for all Americans because he stood up for the things that have made this country great, for liberty and justice for all. And to sit here with this gentle man who stood up in the face of violence, who stood up when people said, you shouldn't stand up, but because he thought he was doing the right thing, he helped our state through a very difficult time. And we're better off as South Carolinians because of men such as Matthew J. Perry. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program has been an encore of a 2004 conversation with the late U.S. District Court Judge Matthew Perry. This rebroadcast is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.